Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we are lucky enough to interview Andrea Wan. And Andrea is the head of programming at the World Economic Forum for the United States. And you probably know about the World Economic Forum. It's a Swiss nonprofit dedicated to essentially approving the state of the world. Um, and they put on their famous conference each year in Davos, which you probably hear about. So, as I said, Andrea is in charge of programming for the United States, and I'm curious what that entails. Um, I'm also curious to hear about Andrew's background and how the World Economic Forum facil- facilitates change and discussion, and especially how Andrea makes decisions about programming uh, in such an important organization. So, Andrea, thanks for uh, co- joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Definitely. So, before we get into what you're doing now, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Happy to. Uh, so, I, I actually have a pretty pretty boring background in terms of my, and to be very honest, I, I, you know, I came up, I kind of stumbled upon the World Economic Forum. So I um, don't hold it against me, but I'm Canadian. Um, (laughs) And uh, so I I did business school. I did the whole um, business route and I worked at a consulting company, um, big, big name accountancy as well, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And that's where I did most of my training, my early career. Um, And, and it was actually an incredible, incredible um, training ground and background to what I do at the forum. Um, seems not obvious, but it, it actually comes up a lot. Um, so I spent about four years at Coopers in Toronto, um, and then I had always been passionate about public policy. I did a stint when I was in, in school in uh, Washington, D.C. I was, I was the Southwood Lumber intern for the Canadian um, Embassy in Washington, D.C., um, and I did a stint in Parliament in Ottawa. So always passionate about public policy. I decided to go to graduate school at Columbia University. Um, and that's where I focused on uh, political economy. And so then after that, it was actually a fortuitous timing. I entered grad school in September 2008. And that's when... Uh, the world fell through. Mm. Um, so 2010, you know, it, you know, it was really, really interesting to be in New York City in, in that time. Um, and I felt called to to really continue to, I think, in, in many ways, continue my education and learning because I actually don't really feel like this is a job. I feel like I'm learning all the time. So we can get into that more later. But. Wow. Well, that sounds like an awesome job. That sounds sounds pretty ideal. Uh, So, yeah, before we get into what you're doing now, you you mentioned how at PricewaterhouseCooper, that was a a great training for what you're doing now. And can you give, like, an example of what you learned then that you use now? Yeah, I learned power of asking good questions. So um, I'm a chartered accountant, and uh, I... I'm very proud to say that because um, what what I did at PwC was I was trained to go to companies of all different industries, whether you were a consumer product good, um, and whether you were a financial services, a bank, a hedge fund, whatever whatever industry. And I was trained to ask questions to understand what's going on underneath the financial statement um, to really figure out, okay, is, what's, how's the performance of this company? One of the um, experiences that I continue to take with me was not just the 
analytics part of, of that job, but also the people part. And I remember I was auditing this one company um, that I will remain unnamed. Um, and it was a large um, consumer products goods um, company um, based in the United States, actually. And they essentially went under. And part of my role was to go in to a company that was breaking apart, um, interview the people on the factory floor, interview the CFO, interview the executives, ask them about their stock options, ask them about strategy, et cetera. Um, and it was so, the experience is so interesting because you really see not just on the headlines or on numbers or paper, um, but you actually see the impact of what happens when a business folds. Mm. Um, and every day I would walk into an environment where people were anxious. They're like, it's today the day that I get my pink sheet, um, pink slip. Um, it was very, very interesting. And it's something that I take for today. Interesting. How, how long were you on that project for the one, the, the bankruptcy? A while. I, it was an ongoing project. So I was on it the, for probably two years. Really? And why is that, was that part of like the bankruptcy court said this needed to be done or why, uh, what was the purpose of it? Uh, it was, it was strategy. It was, um, you know, at the time, you know, aluminum prices were going up. Um, the, the margins were always very, very thin. Um, and so gotcha. I think it was a combination of poor performance, also a leadership change um, and uh, and changes at the top, which you could just see. And, and that's the interesting thing is when you look at a company, you can't just look at, it's important to look at the CEO level and the C-suite, but you've got to look all the way through mm. um, to really see what's going on. Interesting. Yes, I can see how that's very relevant to what you do now. Which let's let's get into that. So, can you maybe give a brief overview? If for some reason people do not know what the World Economic Forum is, and uh, I, I gave a brief, uh, poor description at the beginning, but <laughs> if you could expand, that'd be great. Yeah. No, you did a great job. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're an international organization, Swiss-based uh, international organization. Um, that is our mission is committed to improving the state of the world. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, we are a combination of an organization, a, a network of networks. Um, we put on events and we put on, um, we convene global leaders across business, government, and civil society. But we also throughout the year have these communities and these networks that we bring together um, either um, virtually or um, in person or even just um, we bring them together to work on issues um, that can manifest themselves in very practical projects or very high-level kind of sense-making topics. So it really runs the gamut. The way that I explain kind of back of a cocktail napkin to people um, when I'm at the bar is that, uh, you know, any issue that is um, of global interest, any any kind of gnarly um, with problem, global challenge that doesn't that isn't specific to a country um, that really cuts across business, government, and civil society, um, we'll be doing something on it. Hmm. So, so uh, that that's pretty much so, my pitch. <laughs> so energy, food, water, poverty, all, all of the, the above, all the above, health. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and so, well, let's see. I have so many questions now, but um, how? I mean, how do you get? 
All right, so let's pick me one of those topics, and let's say water or whatever topic you want to pick. You know, how do you kind mm -hmm. of frame the conversation, and how do you actually get things to change? Um, you know, throughout the history of the World Economic Forum, like how how what have what have you guys learned, and how do you kind of facilitate that change? Yeah, it's actually really interesting because. One thing that um, that I always tell people is, you know, the, the big, gnarly, wicked problems of yesterday or even last year don't really change hmm. to this year, right? These things, these are these are gnarly issues. These are complex, um, you know, uh, big issues for a reason. And so, um, and so, in a lot of ways, how I think about and how our organization goes about thinking about what we do is is more of an evolution rather than, okay, um, you know, this is a problem, let's fix it, done, let's move on to the next thing. Um, we, we, don't, we take both the signals from the world as well as try to add our own lens to it. And for a really long time, you know, we, we had a, a position of saying, you know what, we want it to be a completely neutral um, platform and that you can bring your issue to it. We don't have a position on anything um, and we just provide the table um, that people then come to the table to discuss those issues. I think that evolution um, of our organization has, has changed in recent years, probably about three to five years, especially as we've got as, as we've become more involved in projects. Um, and so, one one example would be um, that you know, question about how do we measure impact and how do we see really a, an issue evolve is this um, topic of agriculture. So we started an initiative called New Vision for Agriculture, and I can't take credit for for this. Um, that's the first thing that I want to say is my colleagues, um, Lisa Dreyer um, and Lawrence Fries, and we have a, a huge number of individuals um, in our organization working on this over a number of years. Probably, I want to say about five to seven years ago, there was this ongoing kind of conversation about uh, about sustainability of food and food security. Right. It's not a new topic, right? This, this issue has, has been on the agenda as long as um, environmental sustainability has been on the agenda. But what happened was five to seven years ago, a coalition of, of companies um, and government representatives said, you know what, we really need to, we don't know what it is exactly, but we need to do something security. We can't just stand by. We've been doing projects and we've been seeing the trends and we've been coming to Davos and talking about how food security is a huge issue and we see the statistics. Let's let's go beyond talking about it. I think we're ready to do something about it. So that's something that we call moving from a community of interest where you know that, that this is an important issue, um, but you're not sure what the solution is, to a community of purpose where you zero in, you say, okay, this is a problem. We know that there's something that needs to be done and we're ready to commit to doing something. We don't know what that is exactly. And so from for about a few years, that, that community um, is mostly a group of, um, and it came out of um, food and agriculture companies, food and beverage, um, and, and uh, really a lot of government representatives from uh, developing countries. Um, they, they did a lot of research and they, they created a project called the New Vision for Agriculture. And what they did was they created a framework for thinking about the new vision for agriculture. And they said, first of all, this has to be a multi-stakeholder framework. Second of all, this has to involve not just high-level public figures, ministers or heads of state and 
big business, big agri, but this actually has to involve people at the farmer's level. This has to go all the way down. And so they created that framework called the New Vision for Agriculture. Fast forward to a couple of years ago to today, um, that initiative that started with 17 food and agribusiness companies has now grown into a network of 500 organizations um, that are doing things on the ground in 19 countries. Um, I'm really happy to, to represent on behalf of my colleagues who, who have done this great work um, together with this network. Uh, today, we've got over $10.5 billion in private sector investments that have been committed. Um, of that 10.5, $1.9 billion has been implemented, um, benefiting over 9.6 million farmers. And these all trickle down into initiatives and projects to connect um, policymakers with farmers, connect farmers with each other, to connect the farmers with the agribusiness, um, to really work on creating a healthy and dynamic ecosystem to ensure that we can feed a, a world of 9 billion people. Um, which is a scary thought if you think about it in the, in the next few years. Wow, that's pretty brilliant. Okay, so that's that's quite a good example. And so, what would be, you know, what was what's one policy that came out of that that you're working on to, or one thing that you want to change um, to improve, to improve agriculture? Well, I, I think in, in terms of that that particular issue, and this is the other thing that's interesting about programming and about the World Economic Forum is there's no one size that fits all. So, you know, I talk about the community of interest coming together saying, okay, we know that this is a problem. We know that food security is an issue. We know, um, yeah, that this is a problem. Then we talk about the community of interest that came together and said, okay, we're ready to put our money where our mouth is. We're ready to do something about it. So they came up with initiatives, projects, okay, tried a few, failed, all that stuff. Um, then we get into a community of action, and it doesn't always mean a policy lever is needed. Um, in this particular case, it actually wasn't about policy. It was about um, networks, and it was about mm-hmm. creating an investment into the infrastructure and the ecosystem, um, uh, really on the ground um, with with uh, you know uh, stakeholders across the value chain um, in the food and agri value chain. Now, um, another example that, that does have a policy lever um, would be things around. Um, Internet for All, for example. So we have another initiative. It's called Internet for All. Um, and it really uh, has grown popular in the last probably three or four years. So it's a little bit younger. Um, and it's, it's really focused on what, what the way it's described, providing internet access to everyone. There are over 4 billion people today that don't have access to the internet. Um, and it's not just limited to um, uh, to developing countries. There are people in the United States who do not have um, access to the internet. And in, I believe it was 2014, I could be wrong on that date, that um, the UN declared um, internet access to be a fundamental human right. So this one, I think this particular initiative does require a policy lever because um, internet access and digital infrastructure tends to be uh, something that requires public investment and and public policy. So um, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, the nation state that you're in, in the United States, um, you know, digital infrastructure is run by um, the uh, Department of Commerce. So previously under Secretary Penny Pritzker um, and the NTIA and, and, and that shop. Um, so some of the public policy um, levers that you have there include 
um, but not exhaustively, you know, policies on net neutrality, something that right now is, is, is really undergoing a renewed debate under the new Trump administration. Um, so, and public-private partnerships is another example. It's not exclusively a policy lever, but it is an example of kind of initiative and action that's required and saying, okay, which telecom providers really want to step up and provide um, free and fair and affordable access to the internet via mobile phones. Um, and this is where companies like Facebook with zero rating programs come into play. Gotcha. Okay. And so with both these initiatives, how how does the World Economic Forum partake? Like you guys organize, but like with, let's say, the agriculture initiative, I mean, that's 500 members. That's a huge number of people to organize and to lead. And uh, so do you bring how yeah how do you, how does the world economic forum kind of facilitate that whole process and like bring up topics to talk about and then drive for change um yeah how does that how does that kind of work what's the secret sauce you yeah know? yeah because <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> so, it, yeah it's impressive that you guys can pull this off there's very few organizations in the world that could but yeah, and, and I, I have to say that our organization's um, ethos is really less about it being about us and what we do and more back to the kind of our, our original kind of how we came about is to be a neutral platform. Okay. And so as we've gotten more and recently more involved in saying, okay, we want to really um, dive deep and do projects and initiatives in, in, in these areas, what we've always been in the seed that we came from has always been about being a platform and convening individuals and really bringing the issues to the t- to the agenda. And so, and that's something called agenda setting. So um, just in general, our, our general approach is, um, one is listening. And as, as we think through all the different stakeholders, um, from, from government, from business, from civil society, labor leaders, religious leaders, women leaders, entrepreneurs, you name it. Um, one thing that, uh, that that Professor Schwab, um, who I would be remiss not to mention, who's our founder and our chairman, um, you know, one thing that he was brilliant and really recognizing is that everyone, and he calls these stakeholders, all of these individuals, um, everyone kind of has their own world, has their own viewpoint and worldview of of things, and the and associated with that, they have their own taxonomy and language. And so one of the first places that we start is listening to each of these individuals and really learning their language. And so our organization actually mirrors um, a lot of the the outside world. So we have um, a group that uh, is our business-oriented group. And so we have teams that match up industries. So we have a team that um, is representing the ICT industry that goes and talks to and builds a community around the telecom companies, um, the IT companies, um, like SAP, like Salesforce, like Facebook, like Google, um, or Alphabet. Um, we have uh, other groups um, that and other teams that go to the consumer products um, companies, and so they, they learn their language. Um, then on the government side, we have a whole set and whole group of, of teams that uh, are trained and come from as well um, to go and speak to public figures. And so they were set up by region. So we've got, uh, you know, a team that is focused on North America, U.S., 
Canada, Mexico. We've got um, we've got a team that is focused on Mina, the Middle East um, and North Africa region. A team on Asia and China and Japan and Korea. And so they they know and they build their relationships with the ministers from from that region. And then we've got teams that match civil society organizations, labor leaders, religious leaders, women leaders, um, you name it. Um, and so the first step is really understanding where all of these groups are coming from, listening to them and hearing from them what the issues that are top of mind for them are. Then what we do is we kind of bring it all together and in a, in a series of kind of and this is ongoing throughout the year and through the brainstormings and ongoing conversations. Um, it's really interesting at the forum. In a lot of ways, it, it feels more like my job is to just talk to people hmm. and just to hear and listen and to understand where they're coming from and understand who they're talking to. And that all comes together. And, and from that, we, we have a series of kind of more directed brainstormings and workshops. And we say, okay, here's some common thematics that we see surfacing this year compared to last year or next year. Like we, we give it a little bit of a focus. We give it a theme this year, the theme for the annual meeting was responsive and responsible leadership. So, so all of our listening comes through that lens. We come together, we see what kind of bubbles, bubbles up to the top, what is common. Um, and then from there, we, we then take it into and say, okay, what's new this year? Okay, we know that this is common, you know, this issue about food security, this issue about internet for all, that's not really new. It's still something that is of common interest to a lot of people. What's our new spin? Where do we want to take it? And that's where I think um, programming comes in, and that's where we um, apply some of our our own learning and our own thinking. And part of part of what I'm privileged to do, you know, on on the forums, programming team is to also take a little bit of my own education and I and I speak to a lot of academics as well and they inform that and we say okay this is what the stakeholders want what is really needed we take that as the major input um then we say okay how do we really push this this conversation forward we know that industry is is really concerned with um, ensuring um, that that, uh, that that artificial intelligence, for example, um, uh, is the new um, is the new area of growth for many industries, both startups and big business alike. Okay, we know that's an issue. What's the society angle to that? Where do we need to move that conversation? Mm-hmm. We we know that AI is, is a huge opportunity for growth, but more than growth, is it also um, a huge opportunity for asking questions about the ethics of AI. Why or why not? How do we want to frame it? And how do we frame that question in a way that given everyone is using different language, that we use language that brings people together as opposed to zeroing in on silos of individuals because they're already talking to each other within their own world and their own silos. That was a bit of a roundabout say. No, hope, that, hope that, that was that, that was awesome. You should write that down because I mean, you, it, you know, from the surface, it's like, oh, you guys do an incredible job of like bringing people together and making change. But it, there's just so much research and support behind that, right? That actually makes that possible. It's not the. Uh, it's a little. Uh, you guys make it look easy, but there's a. You, like you said, you you understand the the interests of the stakeholders and the people who are affected because you have people focused on all these different areas and working with all these different companies. 
That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting too because our teams that are business facing teams, for example, you you see they're um, they're captured by their constituents, right? Mm. They're they're in charge of making sure that they represent business views. So when I speak to our business teams, they're coming from that perspective. Mm. Then when I go and I speak to our teams that are representing civil society, they come with their perspective. And so in some ways, we kind of have our own mirror our own internal kind of pseudo negotiation if you will or our conversation about okay well this is a business perspective but you know what we need to really you know strike this balance with the society angle on on topics of inequality in education for example um and and what's interesting is that you have a mini debate that happens internally first and you can kind of play out what you think will happen when you actually bring the real CEOs or the real heads of state together. Um, and, and so that's something that, um, you know, that I use a lot, which is really being able to tap into that proxy of my colleagues who really know their, their constituents well. Um, and you bring them together in different combinations and you use different language and you frame the question in a different way and you kind of play out how you think the conversation is going to go in Davos or in real life um, with the real constituents. And more or less, it, it, it does play out the way that you think. Interesting. Wow. A lot of preparation. That's good. I mean, that's, that's what makes the difference. And and can you, so let's talk a little bit about what you're, what you're doing now. And you, I think you alluded to a lot of it, but can you uh, kind of t- describe your role as head of programming for the United States um, to us? Yeah, so our, our team, so programming is, um, our global programming group is about a team of 25 individuals. Um, the vast majority of us, about 10 to 15 of us, are based in Geneva. Um, five of us are based in the U.S., and then we've got a couple in uh, in China. And really, our, our goal is to kind of sit outside of all of those teams that I just described, the teams that are business-facing or government-facing or civil society-facing, we sit outside of that structure. And we and we come together and we um, are kind of organized like a newsroom. So what I imagine the New York Times or the Economist magazine, the way that they're organized, we have different desks. And so um, the desks are organized by topic. So we have um, a small cluster of my colleagues that are focused on environment and sustainability topics. Another cluster that's focused on economics and finance. Um, Another cluster that's focused on science and technology. My cluster um, is focused on business innovation and entrepreneurship. And so that's my topical frame. Um, but then on top of that, I am part of the leadership team um, that, that thinks about the program from a big picture and sits on top of all those, all those topics. So I kind of wear two hats. One is uh, as being a little bit of a, a senior editor, if you will. And the other is doing some of the bread and butter work around um, bringing conversations to life around business innovation and entrepreneurship. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. And what are some uh, around business and uh, innovation and entrepreneurship? What are some of the, the hot topics that, are, that you're looking into now? Um, some of the, the, the biggest thematics that we, um, that we came out of Davos with was uh, this conversation about artificial intelligence. That was that was a major major theme. Um, AI was everywhere, and part of it is endogenous because we put AI onto the agenda. But then, why do we put AI onto the agenda? It, it comes from our consultations with 
our experts and our stakeholders. And so it, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. You put it on the agenda before it comes out as a major theme, but it comes out as a major theme because you put it on the agenda, right? Um, but artificial intelligence was a major thematic, mostly because um, AI is the source of, of new growth for for all kinds of industries that I mentioned before. Um, everything from healthcare to manufacturing and automation to um, your classic IT um, providers. Um, and and what's really interesting here is two two things. One is there's a philosophical top, um, conversation about AI. Um, how far do we want to go in terms of um, allowing artificial intelligence to um, automate and take over many of the processes today that people are responsible for? One example is um, data. How much do we want um, machines and algorithms to know about ourselves and our personal data um, and to be able to share that information with other machines? Um, and other algorithms, and that's the whole ecosystem of the Internet of Things is another example, which is all connected, right? How much do we want that um, to happen? Questions about privacy and security are, um, are involved with that. So there's the ethical questions. Um, then there's a very practical business question, which is uh, a lot of people are scared about AI. They're scared about the idea that your fridge knows exactly how much <laughs> you eat in a week and it's going to send an automatic um, grocery list to your grocery store. Um, and are you okay with Whole Foods knowing, you know what, you're not exactly sticking to the diet that you told <laughs> your fridge that you wanted to, you know, all those things. And there's a lot of anxiety with that. And that goes back. That's an example of privacy again, but there's also questions about jobs. Um, and a lot of people are worried that automation and artificial intelligence is replacing jobs, white-collar jobs, more specifically. Um, and so all of that is leading to this concern that AI is getting a bad rap um, and and that um, consumers um, will be hesitant to embrace companies and products that have AI embedded in, in their products. Um, and so that's a really strong business thematic um, and a question of, well, how do we, what are some questions that we need to answer to the general public? What are some ways and controls that we need to create if we are business um, in order to build trust um, in, in this industry? Um, there's AI as an industry, and then there's the broader kind of applications of AI, the Internet of Things, um, uh, algorithms, um, and machine learning. All of that wraps up into something that we at the World Economic Forum um, have called the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and so, so that was an ongoing um, thematic as well, um, which is about as we, um, as we, as society moves into the next industrial revolution, and, and this was informed by Andrew McAvee and Eric Ben Holtzman's work on the next second machine age, um, Alex Moss's work on industries of the future. Um, so it's, it's not really anything new. We just put our own spin on it, calling it the fourth industrial revolution, um, referring to the, the next big industrial wave um, that is going to create disruption and, and change in how we work, play, and live. As we go into the fourth industrial revolution, in which that civil society needs to be involved 
businesses need to um, put controls on their products and their services. Hmm. So that was another major thing that we're thinking about. Um, and I think the particular um, lens through which we're, we're looking at this going forward isn't what is the fourth industrial revolution or how, or even how is it going to change how we work playing this, but more how do we make sure that as we go into the next industrial revolution that we've learned the lessons of the first industrial revolution where hmm. we had robber barons of, of standard oil and, um, and we, and that's where a lot of labor unions came out of because um, you had big business and you had the robber barons um, really monopolizing um, a lot, not just what industry did, but what society, um, the rules of society. And so how do we go into the next industrial revolution thinking about jobs and the new jobs that need to be created and to, to educate, um, educate the workforce? Um, but also how do we go into the next industrial revolution ensuring that it, the benefits of and health, the benefits of um, and advanced healthcare techniques um, and advanced genomics, um, the benefits of, of automation and new industries aren't just excluded to the 1%. Hmm. But how do we actually use this industrial revolution to be a revolution for the many, for the 99%? Because you take the stance that uh, you, you take the neutral stance essentially, and so you're gonna say AI is coming. So let's try to figure out how to educate the public and to make sure that when AI does come, it helps a lot of people, not just the the few. Is that kind of the perspective that you yeah? Guys to, and, yeah, interesting. That's great. Yeah, and, that's right. And the, that's right. And if you think about it, a lot of a lot of countries have. Um, aren't even anywhere in what we call the third industrial revolution, which is the computing mm, age. Yeah. Um, you know, and so when we're talking about, and, and you know, and I'm I'm in California right now, um, and, and you know, there's all this conversation here in, in, in California and Silicon Valley about self-driving vehicles and you know how your fridge will be able to talk to your grocery store and how your coffee machine will <laughs> be able to talk to your fridge and all these things, right? They all sound like a great utopian future. But guess what? Only one percent of the world right now can even fathom that future. Because how many how many people have clean water um, or even access to, to food that is nutritious? Let alone talk about how technology is going to enhance the distribu distribution delivery of that. You know, how many of us are lucky here in the United States to be able to access, you know, um, Amazon delivery services and 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 drone delivery, right? So. I think a lot of global conversation um, has to be focused on ensuring that the benefits of this technology is accessible to to everyone. Interesting. Well, and what type of uh, you know you mentioned the first industrial revolution. Do you have lessons from that that you're applying so that you know it doesn't go accrue all to the one percent? How do you do that? Because it seems like it could easily go that way especially with some of these larger companies with all yeah. the computing power and the data that they have. Agreed. And especially if you look at the, the digital ecosystem right now, you've got, um, you've got huge conglomerates of, of companies um, that are amassing power um, and, and market share, if, um, is, which is a better word. Um, actually, interestingly enough, 80% uh, of the world's profit 
um, today accrue to about 10% um, of public companies. Wow. Uh, and yeah, and actually experts in Davos, and we had a, a session on that and a conversation. Um, they anticipate that that concentration is actually only going to become more acute. That number is only going to go up. Um, so what does that mean? And and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it's not necessarily a bad thing. When you have um, when you have such a complex ecosystem and a global economy that is so uh, so dynamic and and so uh, interconnected, you know, having entities that see that ecosystem and can um, and can move quickly within that ecosystem that can innovate um, because they have that ecosystem beauty. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Uh, but but I do think some of the lessons, and getting back to your question, um, that we have some of the lessons that we learned from earlier industrial revolutions really are around trust and trust building, and we're still in that experiment, right? It wasn't. It was just a few years ago when you had Occupy Wall Street protesting, and and we have different kinds of protests. But I think one thing that we cannot deny is that. Uh, that the 99% or the middle class or however it is that you want to describe it, um, they're in, you know, they're in a precarious state right now where where the jobs that they've enjoyed for the past 30 years are, are changing. And actually that term, the new precariat, is actually coined by uh, Harvard professor Michael Sandel. And he describes... Um, this, this new class of, of, of majority of individuals who are called the, the precarious hmm. um, because they don't know where their next jobs are coming from, um, because they are kind of um, caught between this transition between the past industrial revolutions and, and the future and the next fourth industrial revolution. Um, and so I think it's incumbent on, on, on all of us, on entrepreneurs, especially um, on big business, on policymakers, on ensuring civil society, which is a shrinking space, um, that civil society has a place at the table um, to help shape policy and to help shape, um, you know, public public private initiatives um, to ensure that that access and, and that distribution of wealth really occurs. Hmm. Interesting. So, so do you talk about like basic income and other type of policies to ensure that? Uh... You know, people who the precarious are taken care of, no matter what happens. Yeah, we do. We actually had a debate on on basic income because, it's, um, if you recall, in 2016, there there was a big um, there was a vote in Switzerland on a universal basic income, um, and so a lot of um, a lot of rhetoric around universal basic income has has come up. You know. We don't have a position on specific policies like that. Um, we mostly want to bring to the table and, and surface uh, a meaningful debate in that, you know, we look at both the pros and the cons. Um, we look at both the short-term effects and the long-term effects of, of that. As an example, mm-hmm. universal basic income um, being just one example of many different kinds of policy levers. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we're uh, we we still have a few minutes left, I think. But uh, I have some other questions, which are a little uh, outside of programming. But uh, you have such an interesting job, I have to ask. So um, bear with me, and feel free to uh, pass on a question if uh, if if need be. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I, I I was curious. You know, you're in the middle of 
kind of a how the world thinks about us talking to world leaders, or at least the United States. And, you know, and so mm-hmm. what's the feeling of how the world is feeling about the United States right now? Um, I mean, you have your own personal opinion, of course, too, but uh, which, yeah, w- it's kind of a broad question, but just curious what your thoughts are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that um, it's, it's not going to be very surprising, right? The I think the global community, the globalized community, which is really representing, you know, um, you know, free trade, globalization, um, you know, uh, a global economy, um, I think in general is a little bit, you know, anxious and um, looking at a, a period of uncertainty when it comes to the Trump administration rhetoric and, and so far the um, the policy that that uh, that seems to be coming out of the Trump administration around, you know, increasing, you know, barriers to trade, um, tariffs, uh, and and increasing a general stance on on protectionism um, in the United States. Now, trade protectionism, you know, is is not always a bad thing, and it, sometimes it gets a bad rap in the global community, right? Um, it just depends on your perspective. Right? Trade protectionism, you know, in, in Europe has been used for for decades, right? Why to protect local providers, local farmers, um, local businesses? Every country in every region uses, to a certain degree, trade protectionism. Um, so, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. What we do know, though, is that you know when borders go up, when trade protectionism goes up. Um, that the global economy overall um, starts to detract. We know that um, that a global free flow of trade, um, and this is macroeconomics 101, leads to uh, an increase in that pie, right, overall. Um, now, the distribution of that pie, that's different, and that's where you get to issues of comparative advantage and um, competitive advantage and, and where you have different regions really benefiting from um, more disproportionately um, from that global trade. Um, and that's where a lot of the Trump administration kind of, um, you know, their concern over, you know, trade with China, that's where that comes from, right? Which is, is the United States getting their fair share? Depends on who you are to define what fair share means. One thing we know is that when we have free flow of trade, um, the pie overall gets bigger. Mm. And so some some in, in the in the global community believe that it doesn't matter how you distribute that pie in the long run. Sure in the short run we've gotta we've gotta work on that. But in the long run, as long as that pie keeps getting bigger, we're okay and we need to advocate for that. That's where some of the, the tension exists. Okay. Because others say, nope, we've got to focus on protecting our own our own country and our own domestic economy. Um, so the global economy and the, and the world in general is looking at the United States from an economic perspective with a little bit of that kind of anxiety and uncertainty. Um, is the global economy going to continue to grow under, under new policies because America is um, still remains a superpower economically, militarily, um, and, and I would argue culturally? Definitely. Then there's the whole dynamic around how is the world really seeing the United States from a social perspective and a cultural perspective. Um, I don't think I need to go into detail on on that because you know it, it comes down to personal perspective 
on 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 that, and everyone in the world has has a different perspective on it. Um, but I I can say uh, that it's probably no surprise that the whole world is looking at the United States and and the symbolism <laughs> of the rhetoric that you know the administration and and the society and the extension of the administration um, that American society is putting out um, to the rest of the world does have knock-on effects um, in so many ways um, with, with other nations and other regions. Um, it does matter. Well, that's a, that's a, a wonderful answer to a kind of a, a tricky, touchy subject these days. <laughs> you did. That was, that was well done, and that uh, was really interesting. Um, all right, so a couple more. Have you been to a lot of uh, sessions like at Davos or other conferences? Uh, yeah, so okay. uh, one of the one of the perks of, of my job is I get to go to um, because we develop them. There's over 400 sessions in the oh program in Davos, so um, I don't get to go to all 400 of them. I'm involved with, I, I guess, be a fly on that wall. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was curious, you know, what makes a uh, you guys have been doing this for a long time? What makes for what was one of your favorite sessions, or what makes for a really good session where you're like, wow, we come away and inspired or are you like wow i really learned a lot or yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna have to first put a caveat in that this is completely biased okay um because a lot of the sessions that i you know um that i had created you know those are the topics that i'm most passionate about um and you can probably tell that uh, that i am a very passionate individual when it comes to my work um so a couple of my favorites um, and, and then I'll give at least, I'll give, uh, at least one, um, that, that, uh, is outside of, um, my own portfolio. Um, one in particular, and I, I think would be interesting for the movie, um, we had a session that we worked together with Time, um, magazine. Uh, the editor of Time, uh, Mike Duffy was our, our, um, in the United States is our, um, was our moderator. And the session was called The Great American Divide. That's, that one really stood out for me, um, more because of, similar to my answer in this previous question, this was the, the, you know, the prevailing question on everyone's mind. You couldn't go through the halls of Davos without hearing some, overhearing some conversation about, you know, where, where is the United States at, um, economically and socially and politically. So, um, so that session, which really mm. highlights the increasing dichotomy and the divide um, and the tensions in, in the United States. That one stood out to me. And the other session um, that I loved um, attending, and this one is not one of my own, so um, it was really, really good. It was a session called The Road to a Driver of the Future. And this session is all about the future of self-driving vehicles. Uh, it was really, really good, mostly because you can read a lot of reports and articles online about um, about you know some of the questions and, and, and the issues associated with a society that um, embraces that, that mainstream um, autonomous vehicles. Um, but we had um, a couple of CEOs and the, the, the policymakers on that session, Violetta Bulch from the European Commission, she's the European Commissioner for Transport. We had Carlos Ghosn, um, uh, mm. and we had Paul Jacobs. Um, and we also had Wendell Wallach, who is an important perspective 
from academia and civil society. Um, they really got into it. They didn't. They didn't hold back um, into the, the issues and the questions. And they admitted things that they that they still need to be done. And they admitted um, failures and issues. So I I really love that session um, because it was a really honest conversation. Something that you can't find elsewhere online. It, it really um, it really kind of opened up um, the debate. Um, and then and then a final. Oh, was with um, with that, that, that uh, was, was there one thing in particular where like wow they remember it off and that was uh especially surprising from, from the road to a driver's future yeah yeah it's fine yeah, if you don't. I think, <laughs> um well i i think that the if i recall correctly one of the um one of the best comments that that, that was made was um the recognition that not just businesses, but businesses and policymakers are going to have to make together. They're going to have to make a decision. It's a hard one, which is if you have a driverless car, are you going to design that car and program that car um, to kill the driver in order to save a crowd of, of, of um, pedestrians? Mm. So do you kill one person who's driving the car in order to save, let's say, five people who are walking in the crosswalk? Um, and the vast majority and the public um, generally says, yes, you, you know, you should save more people, you know, quantity, quantity, save more lives. You should make that choice. But I won't buy that car. Mm. Oh. <laughs> so if I'm the driver, of course, I'm, I'm not going to buy that car. So one of the things that, that um, is really good is that that's part. That's just one example that's yeah. the heart yeah. of that debate, um, that they're going to have to make hard choices. And make decisions, and you know, some people have died already um, from autonomous vehicles, yeah, yeah. and uh, and so there is going to be um, there there is going to be collateral damage um, as we go into that transition of the fourth industrial revolution of driverless vehicles. Um, we're going to have to learn quickly um, from those lessons, but um, that you know, the recognition that that mistakes are going to be, be made, that you have to make mistakes as you're walking through some of these gnarly issues. That was something that it was refreshing to see um, a recognition of. Interesting. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the, the last session that I, that I really wanted to, um, to, to highlight, which was by far something that I will take with me um, for the rest of my life, was a session on resilience. And it was, it was a session called A Leader's Resilience. Um, but it was really about um, what happens in times of crisis, whether you are a CEO or a human being, you know, just in, a, in your personal life, or you are um, running a country. In times of crisis, you know, what are the things that matter most? You know, what do you do? Um, and this session featured um, Hamdi Yulakaya, who is the um, founder and CEO of Chobani, um, Yusra Mardini, who is a Syrian refugee Olympian athlete who right now is based out of Germany. She's a she's a swimmer. She um, competed in the um, Olympics most recently. And Cheryl Sandberg from Facebook. And the session was moderated by Adam Grant. Hmm. Huh. Um, and that session was closed door. So uh, it's Chatham House rules. I won't be able to share who said what exactly. But that was um, an example of very different individuals with different life perspectives and um, a recognition that at the end of the day, no matter who you are, if you're, um, if you're the 
head of a country or if you're a CEO or whoever you are, you're a human being. And, you know, for lack of a better, better term, you know, shit is going to happen. <laughs> so when that does happen, you know, our universe, and this is what causes me to stay at the forum and to be optimistic every day. And this is what helps me get up every day is, is the fact that nobody, no one person has all the answers. Um, and we all have this universal experience of going through life and, and trying to do the best that we can. You know, I generally believe that people are good. Um, and so in this mess, in this like combination of this complex world where everyone's just trying to do their best, get through life and, 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 and accomplish something, um, you know, when you bring people together and they share what they do know, it really, it, it really can be um, incredible and amazing. And, um, and we get we can get to something even better than than if we were doing it alone. Hmm. No, that's that's. I mean, we all have the same fears, right? Like you said, whether you're running a country, it's kind of funny though that you can say whether you're running a country and actually mean it. But uh, you know, because you're one of the only organizations that can mm-hmm. pull those people into your uh, your pan- conference panels. But no, you're right. I mean, everyone, somebody who's running a country might have a little different fear than somebody who's working on a factory line, but that fear is always kind of the same no matter what and uh things happen like you yeah. said <laughs> oh that's interesting that would been fun to see uh all right so uh last question and if if this is uh okay to ask is you know you meet a lot of probably interesting people and if there is i was curious if there's anybody you met who is like surprisingly funny or really nice or um and if you don't want to name names that's okay too i can ask a different question but um, at least I have to ask. Um, yeah, I probably one of one of the, the principles of, of the forum is, you know, uh, that we protect the privacy um, yes. kind of, of, <laughs> of those individuals. So, I, what I what I can tell you, kind of, at least more more generically, is that I am more optimistic about big business and about government leaders and about kind of leaders in general, um, I am more optimistic than I am pessimistic. Mm. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of, there's all kinds of people who have different incentive structures and, and they come with different worldviews um, that I may or may agree or disagree with. Um, but overall, in my years at the forum and having interacted and had the privilege to interact with, with world leaders, I walk away more optimistic that um, that that people in in general, are, you know, in those leadership um, positions, are honestly trying to do right hmm. in by their employer employees that they um, that they employ. Um, they're trying to do right, but what what is hard, and this is this is the thing, it's not necessarily down to one particular individual who's either doing it really well or doing it really poorly. Yes, an individual makes a difference. Um, and yes, an individual can both um, set a country back a number of years or, or leapfrog it forward. So don't get me wrong there. But overall, what I walk away with, it's, it's the system that, um, that we have to be looking at. You know, and we don't have time to get into kind of issues of corporate governance and of, of diversity on boards and of 
um, CEO pay and compensation. I could I could go on for days <laughs> on that. But what we do have to look at is the the system um, overall and and the behaviors that that system generates, as opposed to looking at individuals. And so people will surprise you. Um, the, the global leaders, you know, you, you see their persona on, you know, online or on TV. Um, at the end of the day, what I've been overall, what I walk away with is recognizing that individuals are good people yeah. that are just caught up in the storm, like we all are. Um, and so, we, again, we have to we have to help each other yeah. um, in designing a system. And we all have our part to play. Wow, that's. I think that's a wonderful way to end. I like the optimistic <laughs> optimism there. And I mean, you're right. Like these people, uh, you, when they have issues, they're, they're in a very public form. We, we all have our own issues, but <laughs> no one else sees those or cares about them. So yeah, yeah, they get caught up in their things and, but they're a lot more, it's, it's refreshing to hear that you say that they're, you know, doing the best they can and that's all we can ask. Uh, so yeah, Andrew, yeah. this has been great. So I really appreciate you, uh, taking the time to chat with us and uh you're like you said you're quite passionate you're quite articulate and so it's been w- wonderful hearing your views on what you're doing and uh what the world economic forum is doing and yeah it's awesome w- without you guys i don't think the world will be quite as good a place to live in now or now or in the future no oh, thank you thank you for this opportunity um it's been a pleasure being with you dave definitely and uh thanks everyone for listening to another episode of flyover labs As always, I uh, greatly appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andrew.